Evening Hope Church, can you open up to Psalm 23? I'm going to read that in just a moment and we're going to begin our, our evening exposition. A reminder that we'll be starting in Ephesians, uh, the great epistle from the Apostle Paul next week as we kick off our term. And if you're in a fellowship group, which I do uh, recommend you all be, that is our one of our vital and main ways that we are discipling uh, uh, from the elders through other men and gifted teachers through to the congregation. That's one of the main ways that we're shepherding and teaching and and learning uh, as a church. <clears throat> Psalm 23. There's there's all sorts of Psalms in the in the book of Psalm uh, of Psalms. There's 150 to be exact, just in case you didn't know that one. Uh, they're, they're usual. A technical term for a Psalm would be a is a, a poem or a structured a, a a verse that is set to music and then traditionally usually sung to the Lord God in the Israel worship or sung to God. And in fact, also in the church, we sing a few Psalms here. And the thing about the Psalms that they are amazingly, beautifully, brutally honest. I remember at one point in my, uh, I think I was about 18, I'd been saved a couple of years and I was in one of the lowest states that I'd been spiritually and, and mentally really feeling uh, under a dark cloud of God's displeasure and separation and feeling as if he even existed and just, just feeling terrible. And I opened up, I don't remember which one it was, but I opened up to uh, a chapter in Ecclesiastes I just swung open the book and I said, God help me. And I swung open the Bible and it opened up to Ecclesiastes and I just started reading, seeking some kind of spiritual hope. And if you've read the book, you know what I got. All I got was life sucks more than you realize. Life is meaningless and pointless and everything you've done, even your hardest, most, most striving, uh, you know, the desperate strivings to serve God by his law is utterly pointless. And it felt as if God was saying, give up. And so I turned over instead of Ecclesiastes, that'll be a fun series to do one day, I instead went to the Psalms and I just opened up and I can't remember which one it was, but it was even more depressing. It was just brutally, brutally honest. It was saying, I, I, my soul is clinging to the dust. Was it that one or was it the one where he's saying, I wish I was never born? I don't remember. But my spiritual depression was not helped at all. It, it stayed like that for a while. And I realized that even this, even this is a part of how God, God is our shepherd. But in Psalm 23, is, is, it's a beautiful psalm. It's all positives. It's, all, it's David not just getting brutally honest with his difficulties, with his struggles, with his enemies, and all of that. It's, it's him rather just extolling and exalting God, or through New Testament lens, the Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator, as one shepherd, as the shepherd who gives to us all kinds of benefits and blessings since we are his sheep. We're going to see it in three main heads. Verse 1 and 2 and 3 talk about this confidence that the psalm writer here, David, has. That he says, I shall not want. That's confidence number two. Confidence number, sorry, confidence number one. Confidence number three, number two. How's my mass? How are you going? Uh, and I went to private school. <clears throat> confidence number one, I shall not lack. Verse 1 to 3. Confidence number two in verse 4. I will fear no evil. And confidence number three in verse five and six, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, it is a blessed, beautiful, glorious thing to be able to say that I am one of Christ's sheep. I hope you can say that. That's our aim tonight, to glory in the goodness of it and to call those who are still wandering into the fold. Let's read Psalm 23, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. 
He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May God bless the reading of his own precious, inspired word in our midst this evening. Confidence number one. Oh, gee, look at that. Confidence number one. Uno, all right, is in verse one here. Confidence number one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David uses all of this shepherding language here, and it's so uh, 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 important for us to remember that he's speaking experientially. He's speaking from his own past and experience. He had been for, I mean, at least a decade of his life, a shepherd boy working out in the field looking after sheep. He had been a shepherd, and so when we see him here start saying, the Lord is my shepherd, we need to see how personal and how experiential, how, how, how based in his own lived experience this really is. He knows what it means to be a shepherd. He knows what is involved in the whole work. Before he was in the military under Saul, before, long before he was king, before he was even anointed as king, and before he joined Paul's, uh, Saul's uh, uh, minstrel in order to play music to help when, when Paul had a demonic obsession, before those days, he was a shepherd. He was a shepherd boy. In fact, what's just so stark and amazing and, and just strikes at our, uh, and challenges our humility is this, that David was a shepherd up until he was anointed to be future king of Israel. At about 10 or 12 years old, he was anointed to be king of Israel. And then he kept shepherding for many years after that. So he's pulling ewes out of the, out of the, the not youths, ewes, the technical word for a lamb, uh, a baby. He's pulling lamb babies out of their mothers knowing I'm going to sit on a throne one day. He's, he's cutting the, 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 the bad and dirty, filthy excrement parts off of the back of a lamb so that the, the wool doesn't get all knotted up and infected. He's doing that knowing, I'm one day going to hold the scepter of Israel. He's there feeding these little things in the, in the crack of dawn while it's freezing cold, and he's laboring over these little, not even image bearers, just these, these what seem practically useless animals that can't defend themselves and do very little, these things, he's caring for them. While at the back of his mind, he could have been tempted to a kind of pride that walked away from that. They said, I'm the anointed king of the whole darned nation, God's people. What am I doing doing this? And yet, it was God's intentional purpose to weave into David's life a kind of testimony and an experience so that he could say, when he was the king of Israel, the Lord is not just my king, he's not just my God, he's not just my father, he's my shepherd, and I shall not want. Psalm 78, verse 70 and 71 says this, God chose his servant David and took him from the sheepfolds. From tending the nursing ewes, he brought him to the shepherd, he brought him to be shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. God was so intentional about that background life that, that what we might be, be tempted to just forget about is the, is the before the glory days. God was intentional to bring that in to shape him into the man that he wanted to be. And God is just 
as intentional with your life. Every single one of us, if you're Christ's sheep, then God has been intentional in the kinds of things. Now, your family background may not have been everything you wished it was. Terrible parents, uh, split parents, uh, dangerous household, abusive household, rich household, poor household, whatever it was. It may not have been a godly, beautiful legacy handed down to you, but... Know this, that God was intentional with the background and the family he gave to you because he's producing something that he can use later. What kind of work background you've had, and maybe it's not as glorious as you wish it was, or or maybe you have a sense of calling to the mission field or to ministry or to just do something glorious for God, and you look at your current present state or maybe your, your past state and say, it was very humble, it was unseen, it was a little embarrassing. Here, at this point in his, uh, his writings on this, Spurgeon says, do not be embarrassed of your past, of, of how low your past was, because even the king, the highest man in all of Israel, was not embarrassed of his very lowly past. Rather, see that in that past there was a shepherding, wisdom, intentional sovereignty of God at play to make you who he is going to bring you about to be. <clears throat> David knew that as a shepherd, in saying this, in him saying, the Lord's my shepherd, and him remembering his time as a shepherd, he's, he's remembering the fact that as a shepherd, I, I would never see a wandering sheep and turn a blind eye. I would never see a, see a, 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 a starving sheep and shrug it off. I would never betray the trust of my sheep by leading them with my voice over a cliff, which is funny picture to me to, to imagine, but you could do that with sheep. They're that thick. David knows you just don't do those things because that's not what a shepherd is. When he's saying the Lord's my shepherd, he's remembering his own life. He, he knows the work of the shepherd. He remembers the life of the shepherd, the responsibility of the shepherd, in that, in that if you don't do your job as a shepherd, the sheep don't have, don't have somebody else to call on. They are entirely and fully reliant on you as their shepherd. David knows this about God, that we can entirely and wholly and fully rest on him. More specifically, we can rest on our mediator, Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd for us. Look at what he says specifically. One verse is analogy. The next verse is explanation. He says, he leads me beside still waters. Oh, sorry, sorry. He first says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. That is when, when your soul is languishing, Jesus Christ knows what to feed you and where to lead you so that you might be refilled. He says, he leads me beside still waters. Christ is not the kind of shepherd that is so foolish that he looks at, at a thirsty lamb He looks at you spiritually thirsty and thinks a good beating will get this out of him and lays into you with his rod. He knows that if what you have is spiritual thirst, he will be the shepherd that leads you to the still waters. And it says still waters here because sheep just aren't smart enough to drink and not drown at the same time. So you put him in front of bubbling waters. I just remember at every point that I insult sheep, God calls us his sheep countless times in scripture. So this is what he thinks of us. You lead them to water that is bubbling or running, which is like 99% of streams in the world. You get them to anything other than a pond or a puddle and they'll drown because they'll go to drink and they'll also breathe in the water that's bubbling or flowing and there you go, you've just killed your lamb. So you have to take them rather to still water where they can drink calmly and without their drowning. And he says, of course, the shepherd who knows his sheep does just that. But that's the analogy. 
Sheep eating crunchy green grass in the calm, cool afternoon. Sheep leaning down and drinking the cool crystal water from a pond in the cool afternoon. That's the analogy. What is an analogy for? What is it a picture of? And this is what we see in verse 3. He, he explains his own analogy. He says, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What is it that David is saying here? Well, what is the spiritual truth or the reality that the grass and the water are symbolizing? In other words, what is it that God brings you to, that bring, he brings me to when we are in need of spiritual nourishment and spiritual water? Where is it that he leads us? Friends, David himself has said in just a previous psalm that where he leads us is to his own law and testimony and word. Can you go to Psalm 19? Written by the same author, David, Psalm 19, where he says this in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. These are the same words and the same phrases, the same ideas that he's giving to us in Psalm 23. What does water and pastures do? They revive, they restore. And how is it that God truly spiritually restores and revives us? Through the pure, beautiful, golden promises that are in his word. They lead us, he said in verse 9 of Psalm 19, they lead us into righteousness. And for every truly spirit-born child of God, righteousness breeds glorious joy for the Christian. We love to be walking in righteousness. It's not legalism for us. We love to be able to find that we are pleasing God with our life. So he leads us to the word. And in the word, we find ourselves living in righteousness for his name's sake. Man does not live by bread alone, Jesus said, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And as the sheep of Jesus Christ, those words are green grass for us and calm crystal water that restore our soul and lead us into righteousness. That's where the, the, the book, this Bible given to us, leads us for the shepherd's sake. He tells us to eat and to drink. Look back at verse 1. He says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, or I shall not lack. There's nothing that I need that I don't have. Now, I know we don't like prosperity doctrine. Amen, somebody. Okay, you're never going to hear here a promise for your new car or your electric vehicle or a promotion or a health uh, a status or, or a fixed relationship in, all, every, in everything you touch and whatever. I, you're not going to come here and hear that because you're in Jesus, if you just pull your side of the bargain, God's going to be obligated to bless you and bless you abundantly and bring in the tithes to the storehouse, etc., etc., nonsense, nonsense. That's, that's not what you're going to hear, but, but. There's such a way that we can respond to that or react from that too far and say, therefore, every blessing that you can ever and any, at any time expect from God will only ever be spiritual and you should not, uh, uh, you'll be a prosperity doctrine person if you ever desire or pray or expect physical needs to be met by God. But of course, that would be wrong. 
The physical things that we have, the food, the clothing, the housing, the money that we need to get through life, those things are not spiritual in themselves, and yet our ability to be content and rely on God for them while we serve him is a very spiritual thing. Therefore, we, we shouldn't so, so tightly, uh, uh, extremely make this dichotomy between what is spiritual and what is physical. Rather, I'm spiritual, and as a spiritual being in a physical body, there are physical needs that are required, uh, money for my family, uh, a house, and certain things that are required. And part of the, the blessing of being a Christian is that we can rely on Jesus Christ to keep us from both, both dangers. Uh, the danger of lack, where I have not what I need, or the danger of plenty that tempts me towards idolatry and worldliness. Jesus is my shepherd. I won't lack. If I need it, I will have it. I shall not want. That's the confidence, number one, that we're seeing here in verse 1 through 3. Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew Henry then goes on to say, You need to have the confidence that says, I shall not want. God will give me what I need. But that promise needs to turn into a discipline where we also tell ourselves, Matthew Henry words here, if I have not everything that I desire, I may conclude that either it's not good for me to have or I shall have it in due time. So in other words, you hold fast the confidence. God said it through his word. Jesus said it. The, 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 the writer of scripture, David, said it. I shall not want because God himself in Christ is my shepherd. But I want some things and I pray for some things and I'm not getting them. So, so how do I balance this up with I shall not want? It's simply this. Either I want what I shouldn't have and he won't give it. Or I want what I should have. It's God glorifying. It's according to Jesus' will. And therefore, be assured, you will have it in due time. And as a good shepherd, he's growing you while you wait. God is our shepherd for us in Jesus Christ. And so you have this confidence. I have everything I need. And the more I feast on the pastures of the promises of God in Scripture, the more I see his marvelous provision for me. Jesus says this in John 10. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He will find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus provides what we need so that we will never lack in all that the sheep of Christ require. That's confidence number one. Number two, look at verse four. I will fear No evil is our idea here. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So he's moved now from an idea of God's provision for me. I'll have what I need. This is the, the confidence of the Christian. I will have whatever God needs for me. Then he moves on to say, and God will protect me. Jesus Christ will protect me from anything that would seek to destroy me utterly and finally. So from provision to protection, and he speaks here of the the valley of the shadow of death. This is no mere slight trial. This is an intense 
difficulty. This is, this is I guess, in, in the Christian life, this could be the, the darkest and deepest of trials that a sheep can ever go through. This could literally be death for maybe you right on the, right on the horizon. You've got a prognosis that is not good. You've, you've got a, 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 an issue like that that is, that is uh, destroying your health, and so death is really on the cards. You're in the, the valley of the shadow of death. It's, it's looming over you. Maybe it's a family member, a recent death. For David, it was definitely that. He was frequently attacked by Saul. He had enemies all around him. There, there was many times before he was king and afterwards where death was looming over him. Maybe it's not that, but it's rather sin. A situation that you've got yourself in due to the sheer folly of your sin. And you know what? It's nobody else's fault but your own. And you've gotten yourself into this situation and you feel like, a, like you're lost and alone in the, in the valley of the shadow of death. And, and you feel guilty and your soul is rupturing and you have no peace of conscience. David knew that as well. In Psalm 51, we hear his prayer in the, in the, in the, in the uh, writings historical of the Old Testament. We see the story that he, un, unforced by anybody else, got himself into the situation where he forced Bathsheba to have sex with him and all of the sin that unraveled out of that. That's the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe it's something else. It's persecution or people around you that are hating you, despising you, making your life difficult, your job difficult, something like that. Whatever it is, this is no mere uh, inconvenience in the Christian life. It really is a sense of looming death and judgment and despair, the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe it's, maybe it's a mental health thing. That, that for you, anxiety just rattles you and, and you seem unable to get any stability or, or a kind of depression that is like a looming cloud that is seeking to bury you under its weight. Whatever it is, it's a valley of the shadow of death. And David here says, I will fear no evil. And what reason does he annex to that? I will fear no evil. For... The evils aren't here. No, he's in the valley of the shadow of death. The evils are around. There's no prosperity doctrine here. Well, uh, he fears no evil because the dangers are very little. No, he's just called it the valley of the shadow of death. This is a pretty intense difficulty. Well, he doesn't fear it for they're very short-lived. No, a valley takes a long time to get through. And if it's death valley, well, you're going to die there. It's literally the rest of your life. Well, uh, uh, I shall not fear because I am strong and independent and don't need no shepherd. Is that his confidence? No. He says, I will not fear for you are with me. Because Christ is with us, we shall not fear. You, do you realize that? Take, take note of the pronouns. Go back to verse 4 and look at the pronouns that he gives in that third, fourth line. Compared to the pronouns of verse 1 through 3. In verse 1 through 3, when he's saying, God provides for me, I have everything I need. He uses language of he. He, my God, my shepherd, my Lord. He provides for me. He, over there, that God, he, he loves me. But then when he's in the valley of the shadow of death, he doesn't say he, he says you. It becomes so much more personal. It's as if, it's as if, God, like a good shepherd, comes so much nearer to us when we are in those difficulties. Uh, the valley of the shadow of death and trial and difficulty for the sheep 
of God, those valleys become teaching moments when what we knew to be true and knew to be biblical become entirely personal for us, and we're able to say, what I knew about him, I now cherish about you, God. I was, I was face to face with a page then. I've, I heard it. I'd, I'd heard you did those things. I was reading it. Now I'm face to face with you, God. I, I sense you. I see your hand. I understand your presence right now. And he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They comfort me. Now, now those two things, hand in hand, in the, in the hand of a shepherd, a rod and a staff, are, are, are not entirely comforting things if you're, if you're face on with a shepherd. It's amazing how, how, how safe Jesus can feel once you're behind him. But when you're face-to-face with Jesus as an enemy, seeking to destroy his people or attack his church, he's very, very scary. That rod and staff are not comforting items. When, when you're a sheep, the rod and the staff are used for, for counting the sheep, as that you have to go under the, under the rod as he, as he allows each sheep into the pen, and it's a sign of his care and his counting and his personal knowledge. But when you're front on with Jesus, when you're attacking his sheep, if you're an enemy of God, those things, they're just, they're weapons. They're, 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 they're in the hand of the shepherd so that he can bloody up the things that would come and hurt his people. Do you, do you remember? and recall just how just how gutsy and manly little boy David was when he came up to Saul when he wanted to fight Goliath. Right? We need to remember that the shepherding job was a it was a gutsy masculine task. It's not it's not it's not pretty shepherd boys combing their sheep out in the in the little pasture behind daddy's mansion. This is this is real stuff. They smelled horrible. They smelled like sheep. They they worked in the dirt. They lived on the ground. They were out under the stars, right? But these men <clears throat> As David gives us example, at least he's the quintessential example. He, he comes to the, to the warfare, to the military campaign where, where, where the Israelites were camped up in defense against the Philistines. And he hears the Philistine giant Goliath start mocking God and insulting his people. And David says, well, someone's got to kill this guy because you're not allowed to blaspheme God. That's one of the rules. There's not many. So I'll kill him, I guess. And, and Saul says, you're a kid. Like you haven't gone through puberty yet. You're not allowed to go and fight a Goliath. That's embarrassing if you win. It's embarrassing if you lose. You can't do that. And David says, guys, guys, King Saul, when I am a shepherd boy and I'm in my field, countless times, a, sh- a, a, a bear comes and yoinks one of the lambs and runs off. Don't I, don't I fight it? A lion comes and yoinks a you and bounds off into the field. Don't I chase it? In fact, it's, it's even more, you know, Rambo than that. He actually says, don't I chase the bear grab it by the beard of the chin and strike it and take my lamb back. That's awesome. He doesn't even use, which I would feel would be so such an act of neglect from his father that he doesn't give to his son a bow and arrow because you can kill a bear from a distance. He doesn't do that. He makes it really personal. He climbs after the bear, gets in front of it, grabs its face. I don't even know they had face, chin hair, but if you got as much guts as David, you, like, this is stuff that even... Even, I don't see Russians doing on YouTube until they've done some vodkas before this. And he boxes the thing, probably lectures it, sends it off with a spank or kills it. And he does the same with a lion. Now, I, I Googled this because I thought, there's probably a miniature lion breed in Israel. And there's not. They're legit lions. There's probably a miniature bear because bears can be small. If, if, I would, if I ever pounded a koala to death, if... 
I would use this language. Did I not grab it by the face and, and, and beat it? Uh, uh, but you'd, you'd go and Google, what kind of bears live where this guy lives? And you'd see that I'm, I'm all talk and I'd be arrested because that's illegal in our country. But here's David. He, I Googled it, Syrian grizzlies. They're like the same Alaskan ones, the stuff that you run from if you've got a massive shotgun and this guy's beating it with his hand. All of that to say, David knows what it costs and David knows what is needed and David knows what is involved in protecting the sheep and the lambs. And he says, that is true of God for me. He's making the argument, when he's talking to Saul, he's making the argument from the, from the lesser to the greater. Saul, God gave me strength to beat a bear when all that was on risk was a lamb. Now his reputation and his people and his army and his king are on the line. You don't think God will give me strength needed to kill the giant? And so also we can do the argument from the lesser to the greater. If God would give to David the king elect or the king anointed, the future king, the little boy, if God would give him all that was needed so that he could kill the Philistine giant called Goliath, how much more so will he give to his own son all that is needed and all that is required to protect and save and rescue his people, the church? And this is the great example of Goliath. Again, to, to have a little fun with prosperity preachers, I'm not going to stand up here and say, what's your giant? Is it a debt? Is it a relationship? Is it your wife? What's your Goliath? You know, uh, uh, how are you going to get through this and crack it in the skull and escape you know, the tyranny of your boss or whatever? We're not going to say that your, your horrible mountain of a situation is, is any of those. You know what the, the great New Testament kind of example and picture that your greatest enemy is that condemns you and mocks you and laughs at you in its victory? It's death, empowered by your sin, given authority from Satan. God's law condemns you as a sinner. The devil, empowered by that legal transaction or that legal allowance, will utilize all that he has to destroy you. But ultimately, death will swallow you in, in, in your physical death and for eternity in hell under God's judgment because you are a sinner. And Jesus, our great champion, he comes to the earth not to rescue you from a bad marriage or bad finances or even health issues or mental health. You know what he came to rescue us from? That one thing we're so apt to forget every day, eternity in hell. He came as Jesus Christ, our champion, the, the greater shepherd, the greater David, the greater king, the greater champion. He came, he went face to face with, our, with death, hell, the devil, and all of our sin. He took it into himself. He rose victoriously on the third day on Sunday so that he is now in eternal life saying, I paid for your sin. My death is the victory, head blow to the serpent, that giant who stood against you, Jesus Christ is the great good shepherd that sacrifices himself to protect the sheep. This is what Jesus says of himself in John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The greatest sacrificial work, the greatest act of shepherding that Jesus ever did was that he went to the cross to be butchered and brutalized for you, in your place, before God, to save you from your sin. And isn't it beautiful that this, this Psalm 23 is all about the shepherd Jesus, and Psalm 22 is all about 
the lamb Jesus who is butchered and crucified and bleeding and, and, and tormented on the cross, Psalm 22. You can go back and read it later, a, 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 a 31 verse psalm, but it tells us all about the, the prophecies of Jesus' suffering and his, his brutality and his agony in death for us. And here's Psalm 23. The shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. The shepherd uses all the power that he has, his, his staff and his rod, his power from on high, the Holy Spirit, all that is given to Jesus Christ he uses for our sake to protect us. And therefore, he goes on to promise in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who's given them to me, he's greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Me and the Father are one. There simply is no enemy greater or more powerful than the Father, especially the Father and the Son combined in the powerful fellowship of the Holy Spirit through the new covenant gospel. There's nothing that can separate us from Jesus Christ's love. Not the sheep from the shepherd. <clears throat> so our confidence, number one, is that we have all we need. I shall not want. Our confidence, number two, is that we will fear no evil. Nothing comes into the valley of our life that makes our shepherd afraid. And confidence number three is that I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Look at verse five. You prepare a table before me. This is, this is somewhat moving away from the analogy of the sheep because it's only a crazy shepherd that will set a genuine table and set his sheep up onto a table and pour them wine. Nonetheless, you set a table for me. Here Jesus is, is pictured for us as the great host who, who brings us in in his hospitality and looks after us. He sets a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is, this is the Christian life. Your enemies are around you at every moment until you die. And then you're in heaven with Jesus Christ. Now, one day you'll come back to the physical world recreated. But until you die, you have enemies surrounding you. And until Jesus comes back and recreates the whole of, of the world, there will be enemies against the church of Christ in this world. We will always have enemies around until death. And yet, in the midst of the enmity, at the, in the midst of the attacking and the difficulties and the persecution, there is a, there is a safety set up. There is a, there is a table of spiritual feasting given to us. And Jesus has posted centuries and security detail all around the yard so that you can eat your feast in peace. In physical riches and prosperity, probably not. But in spiritual peace, in union and communion with the Father, Son, and Spirit, absolutely. He sets a table for you so that every spiritual need you have is met. You are fed and strengthened and celebrated over and welcomed into the joyful celebration that the Father has over us. He goes on, you anoint my head with oil. You pour oil over my head, which is, of course, in the ancient Near East tradition. This would be a, something that a friend, a dear friend, or, or an honored host would do for a special guest coming through their home, or, or a dear friend. If if it happened in our day, it'd probably just be a Croatian or an Italian getting in a fight and throwing oil at each other. It's not what we do. We don't really pour oil over each other's heads. But it's the picture of blessing. 
When oil goes overhead, it's an anointing. It's a sign of blessing resting upon that person, of prayers for that person, of, of, uh, of, of course, practical use of cleanliness and healing and whatnot. But here, God anoints the head of his son's sheep with oil. My cup overflows. It's the, it's the celebratory wine at a feast that, that he never lets your cup go empty. The father just continues to send his son to continually fill up your wine glass so that you're completely, continuously, everlastingly partaking of the blessings that Jesus has purchased for us at the cross. No matter how deeply you need to drink of grace today, you will never reach the end of that cup. No matter the sin you need to repent of and confess and step away from and bring to the Lord, no matter how deeply you need to drink of the cup of grace, you will never reach the bottom of it. Jesus will provide more and more and more. There is a well of mercy in Jesus Christ without bottom. And he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is this confidence that he has, not in himself, but in his shepherd, not in his future, but in his shepherd leading him through the future, not in his situation, but in his shepherd over the situation, a confidence that says, no matter what comes, I will look around and if I've got the right glasses on, if I'm looking at it all through scripture, if I'm thinking with scriptural thoughts, if I'm understanding my life and experience through the promises of the Bible, do you know what I'll see? If I'm thinking right, do you know what I'll see? All around me, nothing but mercy and goodness. And we'll say, well, well, plus some difficulty and attacks and, 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 and wrath and, and suffering all woven into that and mixed in as well, right? And I simply say, no. No, read it again. Only goodness and mercy is following you. Now, now, do you experience difficulties? Yes, but that's an expression of his goodness because he's making you more like the shepherd. I mean, do you experience sufferings and trials that feel like the valley of death? Yes, but that's just his goodness to bring more out of you, to bring the shepherd closer to you. And in your struggles, don't you also realize that that's just a testimony of mercy? Because no matter what you go through, you deserved infinitely worse because of your sin. Every difficulty we have, we, 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 we look at it and say, look at all this mercy. I'm not in hell. Look at all this mercy. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm in difficulty, but I'm at the feasting table of Jesus Christ in the midst of my enemies. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. I will fear no evil. The Lord is my shepherd. I am sure that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He has promised to get me home. John Bunyan, a Reformed Baptist, thrown in prison for his preaching the gospel without a government license, a Puritan in England. He went into jail and he wrote what became the, the English language's most famous book outside of the Bible, The Pilgrim's Progress. Don't just know it by the hearing. Go and read it yourself. A marvelous, beautiful uh, analogy, an, an imagery poetic work where a man named Christian, 
is heading through life towards the celestial city, the, the city of lights. And along his way, he goes through, through, the, through the, the, the mud pits of despond. And he meets a man, evangelist, who, who shows him the way to the celestial city. And, and he goes through all of these typological struggles that you read and say, that's the Christian life. And there's this one part when he is with, I believe it's doubtful. And he's with this man called Doubtful, and, and they're thrown by a giant into the dungeon of despair. And there they are, locked up, feeling hopeless, in the dungeon of despair. And John Bunyan writes this. <coughs> he says, so he's in prison, Christian is in prison with a friend, Hopeful. John Bunyan writes, now about midnight, the pilgrims began to pray and continued in prayer almost until the break of day. And then Christian, half bewildered, broke out in a passionate speech. What a fool I have been to thus lie here so long in a stinking dungeon when I could have been free this whole time. I have a key called the promises of God in my bosom. <clears throat> which I'm persuaded will open any lock in all of Doubting Castle. And Hopeful responded, well, that is good news, my brother. Pluck it out of your bosom pocket and try it. And then Christian pulled it out of his bosom pocket and tried to unlock the dungeon door. As he turned the key, the bolt drew back and the door flew open. Christian and Hopeful quickly came out of the dungeon and went to the outer door, which led to the castle yard. And using his key again, Christian was able to open that door also. Next, they went to the iron gate of the castle, which also needed to be unlocked. Though this lock was very difficult to turn, yet the key finally opened it. Then they pushed the gate open to make a quick escape. No matter the despondency, the jail, the prison, the valley we find ourselves in, there is a promise in the word of God that will be the key to your escape so that you can give glory to Jesus Christ at his spiritual feasting table. If you have not been saved and you are still in your sins, not a single promise of good news of the shepherd applies to you. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus who died for sin, who rose gloriously and now reigns in eternity, if you have not placed your faith in him, he is still against you, but he is a welcoming shepherd, a calling shepherd that you might hear his voice and be saved. Have faith Today And for the rest of us, we hold those keys of his promises. I'll never want, I'll never need to fear, and I will dwell in his house forever. He has sealed me in salvation. We keep those keys close at heart. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that as our gracious God, you have ordained as our sovereign God, you have decreed everything. Everything that will ever happen will happen according to your plan but even more intimately and even more, more closely and personally, we can rest on this promise that as sheep of your shepherd given to us, Jesus Christ, as his sheep, we're not just sure that our future is planned. We're sure that our future is prosperous. We know that in Jesus Christ, our sin is forgiven and will remain forgiven. Our, our, our guilt has been washed away and will remain off of us. Our condemnation has been dealt with and will never be revived. You, God, are a God who keeps your promises. And as sheep of Jesus Christ, you will never let anybody snatch us from your hand. Jesus Christ, we are so thankful that you were the good shepherd. 
who did give your life to defeat our enemy, to bear the wrath of God, to, to take away our sin, to cleanse us and to lead us into the green pastures of the celestial city forevermore. Father God, I pray that you would give us a portion of your spirit today that we might be able to live this week ever reminding of what we deserve because of our sin, but ever remembering the beautiful, glorious promises of the gospel that we are freed from what we deserve so that we can live with God forevermore and make us fruitful in our labor for you. Father God, give us new converts. Give us those who will believe for the first time tonight on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remove what has been said that is unhelpful and apply to our hearts that which is the pure key of the promise that we need to hold fast to in this life. For we pray all of these things in the name of our glorious and wonderful shepherd, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.